It is uh, very good to be with you this morning. I hope you have your Bibles open, or if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the chairs in front of you, or if you're using a device, you can uh, Google 1 Samuel 24 and follow along with me as we will be going through uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24. One of the things we uh, learned from chapter 23 is that God's providence is sometimes misread. If you're visiting with us or you just need a little refresher, we have been going through this book of 1 Samuel and, and King Saul has been pursuing David, wanting to kill him. He will do anything to hold on to power. He is abusing his power and authority. And he misreads the providence of God in chapter 23. Some of you remember the situation. Uh, David is in, uh, is in a city. Anyone remember the name of it? Listen to all of these students. Kalah, Kalah. He's in this city, Kalah. And there's only one way in and out of that city. And, and Saul sends his uh, intelligence-gathering people And he gets word that David is in this city. There is just one narrow way in and out. It is a fortified city. And so Saul concludes, God has given David to me. I just need to get there. He's trapped, and I will take his life. That is an example of misreading the providence of God. Providence. God is sovereign over all things that happen. And we see his sovereignty in certain events and certain things, his providence where, where, where he's acting, where he's doing something specific, and he wants us to see that, but we can misread that. And that's what Saul does in chapter 23. In today's passage that Curtis just read, we're going to get into it in a moment, we have another misreading of God's providence. Uh, this time, uh, you know, Saul is still pursuing David, but David and his men are, are, are deep in a cave, and Saul is in that cave. The pursuer is now observed by those who are pursued, and David's men read the providence of God this way. You, you, they, they, they read it and say, he, he's been delivered to you, go and get him. Look at what God has done. And they have misread the providence of God. Uh, Why did they misread the providence of God? Why is David not on the same page they are on? We're going to discover the answer to that in just a few moments. But what has just happened, or what, what happens in chapter 24, is an extremely improbable thing. That these two would end up in the same cave. And one have no idea that the other is there. An extremely improbable event. Going all the way back to Aristotle, he writes this, he says, for what is improbable does happen, and therefore it is probable that improbable things will happen. (laughs) It's probable that improbable things will happen. If you want a more contemporary version of that, Uh, Ellenberg writes this, he says, it's massively improbable to get hit by a lightning bolt or to win the lottery, but these things happen to people all the time. 
because there are a lot of people in the world, and a lot of them buy lottery tickets or go golfing in a thunderstorm or both. (laughs) Improbable things happen all the time. How, How is it that David discerns the providence of God so differently than his men? It has to do with his conscience. And that is, in large part, what today's message and the beginning part of today's text is about. It is about your conscience. It is about my conscience. That is what this sermon is about because that is what the beginning of this chapter is about. Now, Someone has said, once you become a Christian, all of life is stewardship. It's, it's, it's all stewardship. And what I want to open our eyes to as we get into God's word today is that we are called to be stewards of our own conscience. I'm called to be a steward of my own conscience. And you, if you are a Christ follower, are called to be a steward of your own conscience. And David's men and David have very different consciences in this situation, this improbable situation of being in this cave together. So with that, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, the passage that Curtis just read for us. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and I want to begin looking at verses 1 through 7, what was just read. So it says in verse 1, Saul has returned from pursuing the Philistines. So Those of you that weren't here last week, there was this close encounter. Saul was right on top of David and about to take him out. I mean, they're like around the corner from each other. And if you remember what happened, some some dude comes up to Saul and says, hey, the Philistines are attacking over here and and you need to come. And so the reader sees the providence of God, that God was protecting David and he drew Saul and his men away. So that's what verse 1 is referring to. So Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. He was told, now he's got new intel, David is in the desert of Engedi. Verse 2, so Saul took 3,000 chosen men. I, I got to pause here. So we, the careful reader here should see Saul continues to be completely paranoid. David has how many men? Say 600. 600. David has 600 men. These were not the graduates of West Point, his men. They were the lower end of the spectrum of the fighting force. That's who David has. Saul has this massive force, takes 3,000 to go after 600. He is paranoid. And so they've set out to look for David And his men are near the crags of the wild goats. So in our minds, if you were thinking about the ancient Near East, we're in about 1000 BC here. All of the stone walls, they didn't have livestock fencing with barbed wire like we have today or something like that. All of their fencing were were stone. So there's these low stone walls around. And he, verse 3, comes to the sheep pens along the way. And a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. So in, the, in my email, in our churchwide email this week, I mentioned this is a very memorable passage 
because whether we're talking about scripture or other literature, there's certain topics that are generally avoided, right? At the dinner table, they're avoided. There's certain topics that are avoided, whether you're writing scripture or a novel or whatever, certain topics you avoid. It's not avoided here. It's not avoided because this was an improbable occurrence and there was really no way for the writer, we're not sure who wrote 1 Samuel, but this writer, we know the Holy Spirit wrote 1 Samuel. Every book of the Bible has two authors, the Holy Spirit of God and also some human author. We don't know who the human author is, but he just simply couldn't leave this detail out. Uh, So Saul goes into this cave to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Verse 4. Uh, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed. So he's, he's got some stealth characteristics here. And he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Saul is wearing the robe. Saul is the functioning king. You know, he has the uniform, the royal uniform, the royal robe that no one else has. This is a big deal. And David goes up and he cuts off a corner of his robe. Verse 5. Now here, the reader is surprised. If you or I are reading this for the first time, what we're expecting is David to take the life of this wicked king. If you haven't been here in recent weeks, Saul has recently done genocide among the priests at Nob. Before the priesthood was in Jerusalem, it was in Nob. He's killed every one of them, including their children. One escaped, everyone minus one. So we're expecting him to take the life of Saul. He takes a corner of the royal robe. Verse 5. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. First-time reader would be surprised here. What? He's conscience-stricken for cutting some of the robe? He deserved much more than that. Verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. How does this unit, verses 1 through 7, apply to your life and to my life? I've already suggested this has a lot to say about your conscience and about my conscience. The question we should be asking the reader of this text is, what is the difference between the conscience of David's men who want to take him out and David who doesn't take him out? What is the difference between their consciences? Before we answer that, let me give you a definition of conscience. The consciousness humans have that an action is morally required or forbidden. This is something that God has given to all of us. It is, it is given to children. It is given to adults. It is given to every human. We are made in God's image, and we are made with a 
conscience. But the definition gets a little more nuanced and complicated than that. On the one hand, it is sinful to act against one's conscience. We know that. On the other hand, conscience can deceive, since we can be mistaken about what is required or forbidden. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, it is true that continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. I don't really recommend watching the news, but I watch the news, so you can talk to me later and correct me. Um, I, I'm, I'm just thinking of a recent image I saw on the news of, of police officers beating a man. Continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. We can disobey our consciences to such a point that they don't work properly any longer. The Bible describes this as a seared conscience. 1 Timothy 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Seared in their own conscience. Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, the hypocrisy of liars. We can be very poor stewards of our consciences. So if I use the platform here as a, as a spectrum of how we are a steward of our, our conscience. I want to say over here on this side is the seared conscience where you or I are capable of not feeling guilty for some wicked thing that we do because our conscience has been seared. On the other side of the spectrum, on the other side of, of the spectrum from a, a seared conscience, we might have um, a, a super-sensitive conscience, an overly sensitive conscience. So maybe uh, I'm, I'm driving down I-80, there's no rain, there's no snow, there are no cars around. And, and don't tell anybody, but I switch lanes without my turn signal. And that night, I can't sleep because I change lanes without my turn signal. Now, any drivers, instructors here, I'm not encouraging not using your turn signal. You should use your turn signal. What I'm saying is there are things that should wake us up at night and that we should repent of that we shouldn't go to bed with. But some of us have overly sensitive consciences where we beat ourselves up or work on ourselves in ways that we re really shouldn't. Are you following me? So actually, we can sometimes actually do both of these things, you know, in different times or in, 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 in close proximity 
to each other. So we have a, a seared conscience. We see this in Saul. We've been seeing a seared conscience in Saul, mostly in these recent chapters. Now he leaves, we're going to see in a few minutes, he leaves that seared conscience and his conscience uh, comes alive and appropriately before the Lord and, and, and in a few minutes we're going to see it. And so you can, you can move easily from one thing uh, to another. But I want to finally answer the question, why is David conscience-stricken not for killing Saul, but for cutting off a corner of his robe. Why is his conscience bothering him? Exodus 22, verse 28. It says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. David knows the Torah. He knows Exodus 22. It is at the heart of the life of faith of an ancient Israelite. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. It, it is at the heart of understanding God's will for David. He knows that God is not only concerned with David's actions, but God is concerned with David's thoughts and his words. And you should not only, you should never curse God, nor a ruler of your people. Look at how these are linked together. God and a ruler of your people, do not curse either of those. And David has done this in his heart. What has informed David's conscience is not his men. It's not the worldly culture out there. It's Exodus twenty two twenty eight. It is the word of God that has informed his conscience. And so he is willing to take massive risk of his own life. He's willing to rebuke his men because he recognizes who has the robe and who is functioning as king. Who has 3,000 chosen men with him? It is Saul. He does not have respect for Saul the man. He has respect for the person who occupies the kingdom, the kingship of Israel. And he, his conscience, is, is captivated and informed and saturated with the word of God. So the word of God alone shall influence my conscience as a Christ follower, your conscience as a Christ follower. Now, obviously, lots of things influence our consciences. If you spend hours flipping through your phone, that's going to influence your conscience. If you look at things on a screen that you should not be looking at, and you do that a lot, it is going to influence your conscience. If you use certain language showing that you dislike your neighbor, that you hate your neighbor, and others around you do that, that is going to influence your conscience. If you have, over here, hypersensitive or supersensitive conscience, if you have people around you who the main thing they want you to do is to use your turn signal, 
that they've elevated that to something like loving God or loving your neighbor, that is going to influence your conscience. The primary influence of your conscience and my conscience is to be the Word of God. So those of us who have authority in teaching, in discipling children, we need to be careful that what we are influencing our children and their consciences with is the Word of God. And as David centered on the Torah, we center on the gospel. We center on the themes of the gospel, which are throughout the New Testament and also in the Old Testament. Things like the Sermon on the Mount shall influence my conscience. And so may God give me friends. If I'm flipping through my phone, may the things I'm looking at on my phone influence from the Word of God. So the Word of God alone shall influence your conscience. And this is why David responds differently than his men. And he puts himself at extraordinary risk here as we're going to see in this next unit. Let's come back to our text here, verses 8 through 15. So uh, Saul has left the cave. He has gone his way. David has rebuked his men. Verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. If you haven't been here, the guy who is, is traveling across land and sea, across river and forest, across mountain, to, to find David and to kill him. He's got the CIA, the NSA. He's got, he's got I think he even has hot air balloons flying over with, with, with cameras watching for David. He knows where he is. He wants him. David comes out of the cave and calls out to Saul, my lord the king. When Saul looked him, When Saul looked behind him, so he turns around, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. This is not a military-ready position. I've not been to West Point, but I know this is not what you're supposed to do when you engage your enemy in battle. David is a man after God's own heart. He is saturated with the word of God, and he is trusting God in this situation. And he does what a faithful, respectful Israelite would do in the presence of the king in his robe. He falls down. We're, we're not, Americans are, we're the opposite of, of like subjects to a king, right? So pretend that you are subject to a king. And he rules, and you are his citizen, you are his subject. And, and he falls to the ground to show honor and respect to this guy who's, trying to, who's been trying to kill him. Verse 9, he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? Many of Saul's men were echoing what Saul said. They were yes men. So they were saying yes, uh, David's bent on harming you when they knew he wasn't. But this is what Saul believed. And these are the kinds of men he had around him. And David knows that. Verse 10, this day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. 
I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Because of what Torah says, you have the robe. You are in the office. Verse 11. See my father. Look at this piece of your robe. Let's pause here for a moment. So Saul is David's father-in-law. And with tenderness here, he calls the guy who's got the weather balloon out trying to find him so he can kill him. He calls him my father. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. As far as I can tell reading this text, he is still on the ground prostrate like a subject before his king here. Then he says, verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. So he hasn't capitulated here. Those of you who are like, hey, I don't really like what he's doing here. He recognizes that justice is due for what Saul has done. He knows what Saul has done in Nob. He knows what Saul has done in all kinds of places. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch Verse 13, as the old saying goes, from, evil do- from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. I am seeking to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength is what David is saying, and I'm not going to do what culture, what even my own men would say I should do. I am following the Lord, and he will avenge. He recognizes who it is that should carry out justice. He knows the word of God. Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. This is what Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, says. Vengeance is mine and and and, uh, and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip for for the day of their calamity is near. If we jump to the New Testament, Romans 12, never take your own revenge. So this is new covenant teaching now. This is directly to you and me. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Kathy Keller and Tim in their book, um, The Songs of Jesus, say David rightly leaves retribution to God who alone has the wisdom to know what people deserve as well as the power and right to give it to them. Justice will be carried out by God. And David, incredibly vulnerable, laying on the ground, has has basically said, God is going to work this out, and I am going to follow the Lord and the word of God, and I am not going to take out the one who has the robe. I'm not going to steal the robe. I'm not going to take the robe through violence. We're going to leave this both justice to God and we're going to leave, they both know there's going to be a transfer of power here, an orderly, ideally transfer of power. 
David will have no part in this transfer of power being violent and being contrary to the word of God. And he puts himself at great risk here. So now we see Saul's response to this. And we're going to go through the end, uh, 16 through, uh, or 15 to 22, wherever we are. Um, We're at verse 14. 14 to 22 is how we're going to finish up, right? Are we at verse 14? Yes, 14. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? So this is David speaking. A dead dog? A flea? This is difficult to interpret and and what is going on here, but I think what's going on here is self-deprecation is humility. I think he's saying, who are you pursuing? Uh, a dead dog, a flea. Remember, I'm the guy that when they're lining up people from my family, that I didn't even make it to like the lineup. Is I think what David is saying here. Well, what are you doing pursuing me? Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me. Does he want vindication? Yes, the Lord is going to do it by delivering me from your hand. So here's here's Saul's response, verse 16. When David finished saying this, as far as I can tell, he's on the ground. Saul asked, is that your voice? I think he asked that because he's on the ground. Is that your voice, David? My son? So he's used a lot of language to describe David, but nothing tender like his son, his son-in-law. And he wept aloud. So Saul's conscience, if we use the stage again, has been seared. David, whose conscience is saturated by the word of God, has taken great risk and has shown himself to be vulnerable. And this action has moved Saul. So Saul, who has been trying to pursue this guy, to find him, he's chasing him, he's he's got all his men after him, he's now right in front of him. He could just take him out. And he wept aloud. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I, Saul said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. That is the understatement of 1 Samuel up through to verse 24. Verse 18, you have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands. So this is an improbable event, but this is clearly the sovereign hand of God, this event, and that's why this chapter is recorded and it's so remembered and the, the, the details of, of, of him using the restroom is here. This is, this is a, a big event. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. Verse 19. When a man finds his enemy... Does he let him get away unharmed? Like This is outrageous grace that we're seeing in David. The way the greater David treats you and me, declaring us righteous, making us holy by faith. Who does this? Who, who, who lets his enemy leave the cave? Saul continues, may the Lord, may may Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, may he reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king. He knows this. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. 
Unfortunately, he doesn't hand the robe over here. He, he, he doesn't go that route, but he acknowledges the truth. Verse 21, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul that he wouldn't do that. Then Saul returned home. This last phrase, our last phrase of the word for this sermon is really important. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David is the general, if you will. He is the leader of the troops. He, he, he doesn't go to Old Town Pizza with his men. He goes to a stronghold because he doesn't trust Saul. David knows this is a temporary migration from someone who has a seared conscience to someone whose conscience has been awakened, but he's going to go right back. And so he goes to a stronghold. The only reason he would go to a stronghold is to protect his men and himself from Saul, which proves to be what he needed to do. It's astonishing. Spoiler warning. It's astonishing if we look back at the text where he says, May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. He says this in verse 19. I think Saul had some kind of temporary breakthrough here and conviction from his conscience. What does Saul do? So many terrible things coming forward. Let me just mention one of them. He's going to steal, to kidnap his own daughter, David's wife. He's going to steal her and give her to another man. It's wicked. After this event, that's what he's going to do. So, these last few verses that we've looked at. Humans are complicated, and not always as they appear. If you didn't know anything about 1 Samuel, and you just showed up today, and you saw Saul's response here, you would be, man, this guy's, this guy's, this guy's good. Um, he, he asked for David to be rewarded, but this is gone very quickly. And Saul's conscience is back over here into the seared category. What God wants to say to us from his word today is the, the great importance of being stewards of our consciences. God has given you one. And he wants the word of God, and primarily, just as David, for David, primarily was the Torah for us, it is the gospel, it is the themes of the gospel, themes of humility, of suffering for the sake of others. That's what Jesus has done for us. We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes at the Lord's Supper. The, the theme of, of, of hope in, in the resurrection of Jesus, this will inform our conscience. The holiness of God would inform our conscience. The actual words of Jesus and of the New Testament should be the things that inform our consciences. And we need friends and media and books 
if we're going to read books and have media and have all of these things, we, we want them to be things that come out of the Word of God so that our consciences are neither seared nor hypersensitive, but informed by the gospel, by the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the psalm that David prayed that accompanies this passage, Psalm 142, when he was in the cave, a prayer David cried out to you, O Lord, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of of the living. Attend to my cry. Lord, when we are in difficult situations, help us to cry out to you, for you to be our refuge, even if everyone around us is saying, misreading the providence of God and saying we should do such and such a thing, but we know that your word calls us to something else. Help us to be obedient to you. Help us to be very close to the gospel, close to the teaching of Jesus, the epistles, the New Testament, and those truths in the Old Testament that transcend the Testaments. Help us to be close to those truths and may they inform our consciences and may we live with freedom and with joy and to sleep well at night. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.